Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 110. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. Stephen has been involved in business finance and investment for the best part of 30 years, having worked for Merrill Lynch Investment Bank in Munich. He now runs an investment company and a knowledge platform teaching finance to entrepreneurs called Good and Prosper, with a focus on small and medium-sized enterprises. For anyone who hasn't yet heard it or seen it, we, we had a, uh, an excellent chat with Nick um, just a few days ago and Paul managed to get the uh, recording up yesterday, uh, which is Saturday, it's Sunday, Sunday yeah. 25th today. Um, and absolutely first, cl- absolutely first class guest. Yeah, and what I found so what I find so impressive about Nick is he's one of a handful of people with no previous dog in the public health fight mm. who has been so appalled and outraged at the the failures of public health in respect of the scientific evaluation of real data that he's actually gone out and done something about it. And I find that, I find that so laudable. Mm. You know, there, are, there are a handful of people who have sort of reinvented themselves. Toby Young is one of them. I suspect, I suspect James Dellingpole is another one. I was one. just going to say James Dellingpole will be next on my list. You've, you've done some great work by sort of turning your podcast and your platform into, a, into one that – is rigorously questioning and getting people on who are in a position to and have the guts to state what a lot of, I think, right-thinking people or intelligent people can see, and that is you know, that, that we, are, we are having our chains yanked by people who are claiming to be working on science, but whose method is entirely political and mm. anti-science. Um, and so, you know, those all of you need as much support as possible. And Nick has probably done the most of anybody that I know in terms of his um, creating a structure in which highly intelligent, qualified people can start crunching the numbers on a global basis and coming up with answers. Um, and it's interesting that in the same week that you've been talking to um, – to Nick, I listened to James's interview with um, Mike Eden. Mike Eden, and you know, if two really intelligent people with a great number crunching capability and an understanding of the material come up with identical conclusions, conclusions. yeah, you know, and and both of them are effectively saying Gompertz was right, and nothing about this virus is 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 in violation of the Gompertz theory of viral distribution and viral um, development. And there's no second wave. And there's no second wave. And, and what I thought, what I thought was fascinating about Nick's perspective was right at the end of the interview, he said every single aspect of the construct of COVID is wrong. And he sort of Mm. took the sort of five, six statements that we all have been led to believe are true and inviolable and deconstructed them and, you know, and 
turned them into their opposites, inverted them entirely. And I thought that was a very clever and reasoned thing to do. So well done on cutting it so quickly too. One of the things that I, I mean, this is such an extraordinary year. Um, I, I don't know if it's just me grasping at straws, but it seems to me, sort of wetting my finger and putting it in the air, that, 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 that there is more palpable signs, there are more palpable signs of, of a backlash now happening than, than ever before. The, the country, just, just to cite the UK example, the country feels like it's about to ignite. I mean, it? I, 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 it does to me. Um, I don't know if you saw it yet, but there's there's quite a funny clip of a a, a guy turning up to a, a Tesco in Wales just wearing his underpants, pushing a trolley. No, and, I haven't seen And haven't having seen the argument, that. well, well, uh, uh, is clothing essential? And it becomes kind of like existential debate after a while. Is clothing <laughs> essential? Is, well, it is for me. I'm freezing my nuts off. Anyway. <laughs> oh, was this but because... Is this because they shut off the clothing aisles in a, they, they, in a supermarket? They basically, I don't know, I was chatting about it with, with, with my, my better half earlier, just a few minutes ago. Uh, is, is this even law? Has the Welsh Parliament even put this into law, or is it just that mad bastard who's in charge suddenly arbitrarily decided that, you know, you know your shopping is okay, but your shopping isn't? I mean, it's just nonsense. It's, it's they like, can only sell so far they, beyond fast. So they can only sell essential items, but... But why would you do that? I just don't, I, I can't get my head around how that helps matters. It's just like people only shop for essential items, don't they? You know, I think, I think, I think the point is it's one of these sort of laws of unintended consequences that they said basically, well, we need to keep the supermarkets open, uh, but we're going to close all the other shops. And so then the other shops say, well, hang on, if you're closing us down, can you close down the things that the supermarkets could replicate that we sell? So then they've got to go, go through this ridiculous list of, okay, well, people can get, you know, so like like white white colored cakes are banned, but but sort of darker colored cakes are okay. And it just it's just it's just frankly absurd. Yeah, but yeah, but there's a much, much more dangerous aspect to this, which is we are you know, well on the way into central planning. Mm. Um, our monetary system is already a central, centrally planned economic construct. And this is, if you like, the logical extension of it. And this is what happens when governments are allowed and the courts support them. And this is one, one of the things that is, is, is terrifying me. And that is that the courts are not upholding any challenges to this extraordinary destruction and suspension of basic civil liberties. And, mm. and I, you know, I hear what you say when you say the country is on the point of explosion. And you would think that it should have been there quite, you know, some time ago. And, and yet the docility with which vast sections of the public have been cowed into, into accepting this regime blindly. You know, even... Even people like Julia Hartley Brewer, who I was quite astounded at how you know and how matronly she was she was defending this you know we've all got to do what we do what we're told and this is this is the government have told us and, and there was no hint of any hang on a minute mm. are you absolutely sure that this is the right way we should be going I I found you know that that do as you're told and stop rocking the boat mentality because, you know, the government have told us, showed a 
a disturbing well, really, lack of journalistic uh, uh, curiosity, I would say. Well, yes, and and also, but it also spoke volumes about this sort of middle class, you know, do as you're told, and the government knows best, and we've all got to behave, and we've got to do. And in a time in which, and I don't know where I heard this expression first, but it, it's one that stuck with me for for months now. It's, it's the idea of we're living in a post shame society. And that in political and public life, a point came, and I think it was with Clinton's realization that he could get away with brazening it out over the Levinsky affair, mm. what was it, 20 years ago? Yeah. That the honor as a as a a a filter for you know allowing people to step out of the public arena once they transgressed at a certain level. You know, just taking personal responsibility didn't have to be something of the nature of a sexual scandal, but just taking responsibility for policies that ended up being wrong. You know, just the buck stopping somewhere and that the minister responsible would then say, okay, I, I, I'm going to take responsibility for this, ultimate responsibility. In the post-shame world, there is no ultimate responsibility because it's just what you can get away with. Mm. And, and I find that, that, um, the, so the middle class, um, genuflection before the, or before authority in post, in the post shame world is, is ripe for abuse. Because, you know, if you're expecting people to do the right thing and to behave honorably, and that, you know, you can, and they're, they're worthy of your trust, and that, you know, that's just a quaint relic from another age, then you are going to get horribly abused. And that's what I saw that happening in sort of, I'm just going to take Julia's, because I, I admire her greatly as an interviewer and as a, as a broadcaster. But I saw this sort of, this middle class outrage of anybody who dared to, to question the government, because where would we be if everybody started doing what they, you know, doing their own thing? At the same time as you had people lying through their teeth, obviously, and trashing the um, um, the whole notion of scientific inquiry, which t- still today, when you know, when I hear Matt Hancock talking about the science with an ignorance that is just breathtaking. Mm. And his well, very it's, it's an ignorance that one method. associates with with hashtag Oxford PPE because he's not got a uh, he's not got a stem cell in his body. <laughs> possibly, possibly, but I, I don't know about that. But it 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 certainly it has nothing to do with science anymore, and it's all to do with politics. And conflating the two is just we can see where it gets us. Um, and it's done science just as much harm as it will now do politics, you know, because. Who do you trust when all this comes out and we and we see that every single statistic, every single data piece, every single piece of evidence has been twisted to, a, to just to justify this appalling incursion into our into our lives and into our civil liberties. When this comes out and we come back to your original statement, the country is sort of like a tinder, tinderbox about to explode. I hope you're right. I hope you're right, and I hope that the right thinking and real science 
and the drawing of real conclusions based on real evidence will turn the tide. But I'm not, I'm not as, I don't think I'm as optimistic as you because I've just seen over these last seven or eight months how appallingly we can be manipulated mm. and at what awful cost. I mean, did you, did, was it you that retweeted the story about the woman who wasn't allowed who only was allowed to see one of her four and she couldn't and she couldn't decide she was dying and she couldn't decide so she died without seeing it i mean that's a sort of bureaucratic psychopathy mm. that this sort of system always produces when people start making decisions that only we should be allowed to make like for instance what we deem essential and what not so, end of my rant. The frustrating thing for me is that, I mean, one of the, 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 the book, I keep citing it, the book, one of the books that's most influenced me and most impressed me is um, Yuval Harari's Sapiens um, and the, basically the power of narrative. And you would think as a, as a literature graduate that I ought to have twigged that, that stories are important, but for some reason I, I kind of missed, missed that one. Um, and so we've, we've got this great national myth of the, the sort of the blitz spirit. And then you see what's happened in the UK over the last, as you said, the last seven months. And it's like, well, half the country's turned into the Stasi. And the, the most disconcerting thing I found is this is, it, 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 you can now appreciate how the Hitler state came into being. Absolutely. And I've always, always said, always, and I spent 30 years of my life in Germany and I know I know the Germans and I know, I know my countrymen and, and I, I have always been convinced that, and in fact, I think in the 90s, we were given absolute evidence if we needed it, that it can happen anywhere when we looked at what happened in Yugoslavia and Bosnia and in, mm. um, and in um, Herzegovina, that any population can be turned against itself given the right structural power um, environment um, that rewards that sort of behavior against, you know, with the threat of coercion and violence hovering in the background, any population. I, I don't care whether it's Chinese or American or British or German or Russian. It doesn't make any difference. If you, if you put the right power structure in place and the right incentive structures people will behave like that they will and and it's a it's not a it's not digital it doesn't go from zero to one and it's not on off it's a gradual process in which which institutional imperatives force social behavior to change and then our norms, you know, our, our idea of what's normal and acceptable change imperceptibly over a year or two. And then we justify it to ourselves and you know, we think that they're probably right and there's probably a good reason for it. And we, we, we accept the narrative. And I enjoyed Harari's book very much as well. Only as a Christian, I found it soulless and nihilistic. And as a result, as result of that I, I i love the evolutionary progression and i also love the narrative aspect but without without the notion of grace mm. um 
it's too, I, I just didn't, I, it, it gave up too, too quickly, which is, you know, why I think a, a purely rational and scientific approach to life always comes, ends up in a cul-de-sac because you can't explain the nature of grace in science. It just doesn't, doesn't work. You have, you have to, you have to leave that sphere in order to have a better understanding of, of the true, I don't know, beauty and meaning of life. I, I, so I, I, I gave up at that point because nihilism is easy, doesn't require any spiritual growth or reflection if you're a nihilist now. And it also justifies the most appalling actions if you take it to its logical conclusion. But it's a great book and um, should be read by everybody, whether nihilist or Christian. Um, or spiritually aware, because it's just so well written. If you wanted to, we could segue in, into the whole question of narrative, um, <laughs> if you wanted to. Do you think our political system can survive the damage that um, the current intake of uh, MPs has done to it? It's a really good question. Yes, I mean, I don't know about you, the, the, my prevail, I mean, I, every day I get up now just boiling over with anger. And it, the, the, what it boils down to is who do you trust? At the end of the day, you can't trust anybody. As I think it was, I think it may have been Nick himself who said it, Nick Hudson who said it, this has been a catastrophic failure of institutions. Yes, and you know, we, we look, I can steer this back to a, to a, to the to ground that I think both of us are more comfortable with because I don't and that is that at the end of every political day the currency and the integrity of the currency is what determines the morals and mores of society and over the past couple of years I have I've become more and more convinced that as we as we inflate the value of our currency and as we accumulate more and more debt and we we start subverting the moral and ethical framework within which our society is constructed and i'll give you a very simple example of it you you're aware of the 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 aesop's fable of the um, the ants and the grasshoppers, with the ants busily working away through the summer and the grasshopper sitting under the tree playing its guitar and singing and laughing at the ants for doing all the, the hard work. And, and then winter comes and, of course, he's starving and asks the ants if they can, if he can have some of their food. And they tell him no, because during the summer you didn't, um, you were too busy having a good time. Well, that simple little parable encapsulates the entire ethic of our Western civilization because there is a there is a a price to be paid for for not preparing for for not um for not being able to tame the impulse to defer consumption. Because if I can't do that, 
and all the all the traits that that requires for be to be an ant, you need to make a conscious decision to harvest and to keep some of your your store for the winter. And it it requires discipline and it requires an ability to to see into the future and it requires it requires a concept of time it also requires a concept of store of value so if you and if you if you then start rewarding grasshopper behavior which we are doing at the moment in well fact, i'd say we've done that for single, the last 50, we've done that for the last 50 years i think we grasshopper have. culture for 50 years we, we've had grasshopper culture for or we've had a a a slow ramping up of grasshopper glorification over the last 50 years. You know, when, when, when you and I were sort of entering the workforce in, in the 1980s, there was still quite a lot of, you know, there was a basic ant culture. You know, we, we still, there was still a lot of you know, honor and ethics around savings and about being prudent and about, you know, and I, well, I think one of the very first things I learned coming into the financial industry was this whole trustees idea of the prudential prudential man theory you know what would a prudent what would a prudent man do and the concept of fiduciary responsibility and the, the concept of fiduciary responsibility and and but at its heart all of these things was the idea that savings lead to capital formation and capital formation then becomes available for investment and it's investment that drives consumption not the other way around. And over the last 30 years, we have seen this almost hysterical move, and you've seen it sort of dramatically in the last six or seven months, that somehow consumption is at the beginning of all economic processes and not savings and investment, which is just nonsense. And I know you're a strong um, aficionado of the Austrian school, and the Austrian school has that as one of its core tenets. You have you have to understand, consumption is a function of investment and not the other way around. So as we as we we move further and further into this grasshopper glorification culture, it makes a mockery of the middle class values of which we you know, we, we referred to we referred to those earlier of thrift and of saving and of of just providing for the future because no you have you know we are going to reward the grasshoppers at your expense and as you do that you completely undermine the whole basis upon which our societal um construct is is built you know and where that ends i don't know I, I really don't know whether that ends whether whether there will be that you know pitchforks in the street whether institutions will collapse, whether there will be a a reworking of the currency. You know, we've never had a currency regime that's lasted as long as this one, and we can see, you know, it's it's deeply rotten. The answer is will and, and will political institutions survive that? The problem, the answer is probably not, because you know, they will take down the entire middle class saving structure with them. I mean, it's already rotten to the core. And the price of money, if the price of money is zero, that tells you quite a lot about its value. As the pillar of currency collapses, I think they're just going to step onto the pillar of digital currency. And you're already seeing them eye that up. And so 
again, like you and Tim, I've thought about this a lot and, and it doesn't make sense for them to be doing what they are doing without an understanding that they will absolutely destroy the currency. Well, what if that's what they're trying to do? You know, make, let's just say that's what they want to do. Uh, the two the two outcomes are exactly the same because of their actions. So you, you look at their actions and their actions are to to print as much currency and just keep going until, oh, actually, this is going to break now. Well, okay, let's just back away from it and move to something else. That could be what they're yeah. doing. Well, as you as you might be aware, I'm a great fan of Hanlon's razor as a an explanatory um, as an explanatory um, key. And Tim has asked, or Tim and you have asked this question repeatedly over the past six months in Tim's inimitable style of cock up or conspiracy. My, and you're aware of Hanlon's Razor. Hanlon's Razor states that never attribute to maliciousness anything that can be just as well explained by incompetence <laughs> or yeah. stupidity. Um, and, you know, I've, if you apply Hanlon's Razor to this current crisis and then look at the intellectual quality of the people who are making those decisions, the idea that they could somehow calculate fourth or fifth order consequences in a dynamic system where it's really difficult to think about second order consequences is just absurd. And this is, this is really an institutional failure and it's, and it's one of arrogance and stupidity and of political short termism whipped up by this, this appalling noise that, social media is making and the speed of transmission. Now, I'm not, this is no new insight, but this is the first real crisis that we've had in which social media has played and its, and its rapid ability to transmit feelings and emotions, whip them up. And we're seeing the result of it. So I, you know, it, I, I don't believe this is a conspiracy nor do I believe that that there is some grand plan. I think they're making it up as they go along. Certainly and good for the tech companies, though, isn't it? That's This is exactly what they want. They want people fighting and arguing because it's good for business. It keeps people engaged. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that's correct. But we're also seeing the invidious nature of, uh, of, of their power as, you know, and again, this, this, this plays into the anti-science method. I, I learned very early on at school that scientific method was was setting up a hypothesis, creating a controlled environment in which to test that hypothesis. That hypothesis would then, on the basis of those tests, become your thesis. And that thesis would then be presented to the scientific community to try and deconstruct it in the knowledge that um, if it was important enough you know the, the 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 collective questioning of your data your 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 the environment in which you were making those those that, that inquiry um, would test your hypothesis or your thesis to um, to destruction and if it withstood that then you had a you know you had a 
a law or a thesis on which you could build further knowledge. And the idea that these companies are now sort of taking down any critical questioning of the hypothesis that we started this thing off with, there was a hypothesis that was based on a model and we didn't know whether it was a crap model or a good model, it turned out to be an awful model, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a hypothesis and it was one that politically seemed to have, you know, the support of a group of people that the institutional structure had deemed worthy of having an opinion and public policy was then made and you can't fault them for that. But where you can fault them and they need to be faulted and to be held accountable is the fact that they they then did not literally hourly measure their their policy reactions against the changing picture of the scientific data that was being produced in real time. And it is to the great shame of the um, of the the uh, social these media companies. Google and Facebook and YouTube and that they are complicit in denying um, the real scientific process of contradictory opinion you know, and, and and effectively shutting up that debate for entirely political reasons and that's the what that's the question that I have is why are these people doing this you know uh, why why are they allowed to um, to effectively engage in massive um, uh, sub submersion of of scientific of the scientific process. You know, uh, I, would, I would bring this right back to your your um, reference to Hannan's razor that these guys aren't as bright as they think they are. So when Twitter tried to suppress news about whatever Biden's sons now have done, um, Hunter, Hunter. Um, it, all, all that happened was it basically it amplified the number of people who wanted to find out about it, and they just found it from other sources. So these people can try and crack down and suppress news, but all it does is like it's like squashing a balloon; it just pops up somewhere else. I, I think these guys—I mean, these guys are nerds. They're not—they're not behavioral psychology experts. No, I, I, well, no, they're, they're, they're probably not. I don't know. I don't know any of them. But what well, the I guys at the guys at the top one, I I can't believe that that people like Jack Dorsey and uh, Mark, well maybe Zuckerberg because um, Zuckerberg is a creepy android. But uh, I I I just think at the at the, at the level of basic basic human interaction, these people aren't necessarily that bright. I mean, t Paul, Paul has been anticipating some form of government crackdown on on big tech for a while. Now it's it's slowly starting to happen. I don't know whether. Paul, you you take any comfort from the fact that the uh, the feds are now on the case in the in the case of uh, the likes of um, Facebook and Google? Well, no, not really. No, I mean it's just like one of those things. It's just a market prediction, and whether it, mm. whether it's right or wrong is is is. I have take no but pleasure the, the, in the fact that the fact that Google's stock rose on the day of the yes, I thought that was, was, was not exactly encouraging for those who believe in you know in, in natural justice. We have a circular problem whereby the political leaders need the tech companies and the tech companies need the political leaders. So it's w what that told me was there was no teeth behind it. And mm. it, until somebody sort of stands up and says, look, you've got, you've actually got too much power. You can determine elections. You can determine, you can determine what people think you, you know, there is no, there really is no competition against this. 
because if you all work together, we, you know, counter views can't come out. And and I understand that you obviously want to stop certain fake news coming out. And that's that, that's the problem. It's just the other side gets folded into fake news. Mm. Um, if you if you let it's, it's like we spoke about this in terms of investing, didn't we, a long time ago when we said that what should really happen is you should be told you can invest in a fund and you could lose all your money. Go ahead and get on with it and then let the buyer beware. Mm. Then people understand it. As soon as you start trying to say, well, actually, we're going to start to regulate this and we're going to stop it. And we're, going to, we're going to make it safer for you that people think, actually, it's all right to step out with your eyes closed in front of a zebra crossing because the car's going to stop, except mm. the car doesn't stop, you know, because the driver's on his phone. So the, the point being that if you tell people actually everything on the internet could be nonsense, you filter it yourself, you're going to see whatever on there, then, then the playing field levels. But because they're trying to regulate it, they're trying to, at the, on, on the one hand, make money out of it all, and the other hand, inverted commas, regulate something, then it's, it's just not going to work. I mean, there are things going on like... Um, uh, and I've said this before about it's how you get paid. It's how you get paid for stories that is what's driving this all, all of this. And maybe it comes back into regulation of the news media that needs to, to be properly controlled in some way. And I don't know what the answer is, but let me give you an example. If you, um, if you put a, a fake story out on a fake website with Google ads, you know, and then it appears and then disappears, it goes clickbait. You know, you could probably make a lot of money doing that. I mean, I don't know how, exactly how much, but you could probably make some money doing it. And that's money for Google. That's money for the person that's done it. But the story's fake and it's it's mm. nonsense. So, but someone's getting paid. So w something's gone wrong in that process. There's, um, I don't know if you heard about this. I, I was meaning to talk about it uh, as an aside for a, quite some time, but have you heard about fake baking? No, 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 it's, 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 an, it, it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. On the other side of what is fake on the internet, there are, there are a number of people, uh, it's, who, who put out, you know, stories about like little, little sound bites or little videos of how to make something. And they make these really cool recipes and they look fantastic, except they're completely fake. You can't replicate those rep recipes. They're only done just to, clickbait you into going oh that looks really cool i'll make that you know cake in the uh, you know the really easy to make cake by just mixing up a few ingredients sticking it in the microwave it comes out perfect when in fact it just doesn't work at all and there's a lady on youtube who debunks all the fake baking but the fake baking makes a, f a huge amount of money it's like what is real anymore it's just kind of mind-boggling it's mind-boggling that 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 exists but it does so i th i think with the rise of social media and people showing a side of them that is that is perfectly polished um it, it's it's so unhealthy it's like we we need to see the other side and i was seeing a statistic that was st saying that um that people are now having like facial surgery because so many people are, are doing zoom calls mm. what the f is going on <laughs> what is seriously well, what is going on but are, are these not – is this obsession with self and with image not a – is that not a um, 
is that not a characteristic of all end of cycle societies? You know, the the the, the decadence and debauchery and um, and 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 hedonistic pleasures and and grotesque displays of wealth. Good point. Uh, have they ha, have they not always been a feature of societies in secular decline? Um, and you can go back to I don't know. You can probably go back to to the Babylonians and find that the the end the end phase of their society is was and certainly if you look at the Israelites, you know the the, the high point of the post Solomon um, prosperity, you know, five or six generations later under. Uh, king, what was it? Hedekiah was when Isaiah was sort of on the scene. Was um, was one of of outrageous debauchery and and you know and and corruption in the elite and and lack of morals and mores and so. And so it's, a bit of, it's a bit unfair on it's a bit unfair on us though, isn't it? Because the, um, the the you know the swinging Berlin at least had Marlena Dietrich. All we've got is fake cakes. It seems so, so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it does. It is very unfair, um, and yet, and you know, the whole this discussion of you know the ant and grasshopper culture, um, and the and the um, and the decline in, in the value of the currency, and, and all the ethical questions that that brings with it, it they all it all stinks of fin de siècle of. of mm end of an era of a of a you know a time which which will end with a complete reworking of the way our society well, it has to be the end of days have you seen um, four horsemen of the apocalypse the documentary that no. was voiced by dominic frisbee uh i think no. it was released in 2012 and one of the interesting things that came out from that was the rise of the celebrity chef and i thought that was really interesting yeah, yeah, that is it. That's it. And I hadn't come across it, but that fits. That fits. Um, and the, the Russell Napier said something in an interview during the summer, which has had me masticating on on the content of it for since I heard it, which was that a sound currency is not compatible with a with a modern democracy or with democracy. And if that is true. If that is true, then if if the tendency towards devaluing a currency, overissuing it, coin clipping, corruption of the currency, debt, all of these things, if if that's true, then in in every single democratic society, there will always be a the rape of the ants at the end of it, which has tremendous implications for saving and for you know the acquisition or, or for the or for what you do with your with the with the proceeds of your ant like behaviour. Because if you trust it to governments, there will be a time, you know, as we've seen over the last 50, 60 years, there was a time in which the time value of money was positive. You know, you, you in the seventies and eighties and possibly early nineties, it made sense to do to, 
to hold money because we, you did have a positive interest rate, real interest rate. You know, there, there was this connection between the rate of interest and and inflation, and, and then they started fiddling around with the inflation numbers so that real inflation and measured inflation started becoming two different things. But there was a time when it was okay to do that. But timing, when when the point comes that holding money is no longer a sensible thing to do and that sort of shifting it cantillon-like into real assets like businesses, like mm. possibly even precious metal or land or other things that can't be as easily debauched, um, debauched you know, is has to be, if you're looking at a sort of 50, 60, 70-year cycle of a democratic society, then you have to bake that into your um, into your understanding of it. The older that democracy or that particular phase of the society gets in the tooth, you know, the longer in the tooth it gets, the less you should be trusting real assets, um, fiat assets, um, and doing what governments tell you to do, which buy bonds and to buy their bonds and to invest in institutional pensions and to to do all the things that you know that they've created to make middle class ants feel comfortable um, and to get them to do the right thing and to incentivize them from a tax perspective, um, the less sensible that policy becomes. And I suspect right now we're right at the very end of that phase. It just makes absolutely no sense to do anything that institutional wisdom is telling you you should be doing and incentivizing you to do. So to use one practical example, would your advice at a general generalized level be do not keep meaningful cash balances in the bank. I think that's probably a really bad idea to do that. Mm. Because one thing that is that is going to happen, sure as eggs are eggs, and that is that the banking system is going to be nationalized for all mm. the systemically relevant banks. And what and what we will see happening across the entire Western banking system is the um, what's the word for it? Opt-in bail-in. when deposits are converted. Bail-in. bail-in when when deposits are automatically converted into equity um, or to tier one or tier two capital um, in order to save the system or support the system. So, you know, and, and I also believe that um, they, they won't ban gold holdings. I don't think they'll do that. But what they will do, because most people keep their gold in the bank. They'll probably put metal detectors in the doors. So if you try to leave with your gold, they'll put a 90% capital tax on it. And I'm expecting to see over the next five years of this particular sort of life of government, capital gains taxes being brought in at something like, I don't know, 85 to 95%. 1975. Um, in, order, in order to capture the, in, in inverted commas, unfair growth of capital that the monetary policies have had over the last 10, 15 years, so that there was a semblance of fairness. Um, and one of the ways of you know capturing the – so there's a 90% surcharge on gold. So when you take it out of the bank, there'll be a metal detector saying you're leaving and will you have to leave 90% of it there. Mm. It's just that simple. You know, as, a, as security on the tax that you're going to pay. Um, on it, so I wouldn't keep anything in the bank if I were, if I were me. (laughs) 
what would you be doing? What sort of things would you be looking at to protect your money? Well, um, I think, and I had a long conversation with my wife right at the beginning of the year when we went on our, we, we, we tend to walk St. Kevin's Way on the 1st of January or the 31st of December, which is a long walk over the Wicklow Mountains. It's beautiful. And, and we had exactly this conversation. And I said to her, you know, the, the, the best way of surviving a crisis is to be emotionally divested when it happens. And if you just hang on to the sort of nominal value of everything that you have at 100%, I think the only way to survive the sort of crisis that I think might be coming on us, and I, you know, I have no crystal ball, but it just feels that way to me, is to think, okay, well, are we still going to be happy if we lose 90% of it? Because, you know, if we've got 10%, you can start all over again. And having that mental ability to do that and to not have your happiness, I mean, your deep happiness dependent on a nominal figure is probably the only way to survive that. Because one way or the other, the forces in a, in, in a huge wrenching, I'm not going to use the word reset, but in a, in a, in a new ordering of things after a collapse, the only way to, to survive mentally is to not have that attachment to it. Flat um, is the new up. Yeah. Flat will be, you know, in a this, in this situation like this, flat is fantastic. Mm. Flat, flat is fantastic. I mean, I, I have no way of knowing what, because we're, we're outside of my ability to measure value at the moment. We, we left that sphere a long time ago. And I how, still how, long, how long ago would you say? How long? How long? Where did it, where did it go wrong in your eyes? If you had to stick in a pin. In this phase, it's about four or five years ago. Four right. or five years ago. I, well, I thought can, we were going to break can, in 2018. You can, you can trace it back to 71 though, can't you? Effectively. Yeah, the long gone yes. dates back. Well, you can if you. I mean, if you want to take a long histor- historical sweep, you can go back to to Roosevelt um, and the New Deal, which was sort of the ushering in of of a effectively centralised socialist approach to managing the economy. Um, and we had the interruption of the war, and then the anyway. So you can go back to there, and I think you probably should go back to there to understand this sort of hundred year cycle that we've that we've been in but i would agree with you that the 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 starting point for that for this process was 1971 with nixon's um uh giving up of the convertibility of the dollar but in terms of you know of of a sensible valuation for for equities and for businesses i think we probably left that sphere in 2015, 16. Yeah, it's my, my sense. My, my feeling that I thought 2008, 2009 March bottom 
was an amazing opportunity. You know, that was where my 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 um, my sense that markets still work. You know, I don't know whether you remember, but the um, the iTrack the iTrack index for um, non um, non AAA. What's it called? The iTrack. Forgot what it's called. What the CDS price? There's an iTrack. No, it wasn't. No, it's not the CDS. It's the it's the iTrack um, index that tracks um, non-investment grade bonds. Um, and that went up to at the peak 1260 basis points i think so you know, there was a there was a 12.6% spread on on uh, risk free and that was you know that was the market working and that was panic and clearing out and massive destruction of malinvestments and bankruptcies and doing exactly what the capitalist system is supposed to do. And it does it really, really well if it's left to its own devices. Um, um, what is making us sick is the fact that politically, markets are not allowed to do what, they, of what, what they're supposed to do. We don't have that cathartic clearing mechanism because markets are no longer markets. They're happy, clappy prosperity indices um, to, uh, supposed to make people feel good and keep this system alive, which is not allowed to collapse because six it's not eight, allowed to six collapse. Six eight for grasshoppers. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Say that again, Tim. Sorry. Exactly. Six aids for grasshoppers. <laughs> yeah. And you know that, and it's uh, for me. It's very simple. There's uh, you. We are not. We are no longer in an environment in which my economic understanding, training, my financial know-how is allowing me to make any other decisions about you know where this is going. I have no. I have absolutely no idea. What I do know is that ethically, we are on a on a very bad route. Because the, the the ants are being punished, and if you go back to the very very roots of our of our modern society, which was you know ten thousand or eight thousand ten thousand years ago when we started farming, what was it that distinguished the farming agricultural society from the previous one? It was the ability to think through science, to understand the seasons of winter and spring and harvest and laying aside corn. I mean, it's just deeply ingrained in us that we have to, we have to provide for the future. And all our ethics and our, our understanding of, of consumption and deferment of consumption and, and thrift and you know, ev everything is built around that core understanding of what we need to do and if that is corrupted because it suits the political narrative for it to be corrupted then we are building on balsa paper uh, balsa wood and it's it, it, it cannot end well it, it isn't ending well just look at look at the misery and the, the the gaps between rich and poor and the complexity of our tax system and the the bureaucracy people are getting ill from this um 
I, you know, business business stays business. Business is being, and even even good businesses are struggling in this environment. How could it be otherwise? Um, but thankfully, there are there are iron laws of business. They are they are as dependable as the laws of physics, and they have to do with the way that businesses function in terms of the funds that flow through them, the creation of value, um, the, you know, the, the the absolute necessity of having a decent, positive gross margin, your ability to organize around that, which gives you your net margin, which leads into your profit, which feeds your investment and the health of your business. And those are immutable laws. So you know, no government in the world is ever going to be able to change the natural laws of business and business finance, none of them. And as long as you just stick to that and understanding that, then having real assets that create real value for real people is even if those shrink, there will always be a place for the entrepreneur, for the business owner to provide value to society and to receive commends your remuneration for that and the good ones will take that value and run a good business and the bad ones will lose it um, and that's how the system works and that's the only thing that I'm concentrating on at the moment because I don't understand anything else I understand micro um, I've given up trying to understand macro other than to know that it's dangerous out there have you have you read uh, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged I have. Okay, because I, I haven't. So I'm, I'm loosely aware of the, the, the story, but I've never actually read it. Um, and I've got a Kindle on order, so it, it may yet be the first, my first digital purchase. Um, but since I don't really, don't really mind spoilers, um, the plot, as I understand it, is, is that basically the entrepreneurial class get increasingly fed up of government interference and theft. And they basically go on a effectively a strike. Is that broadly correct? Is that um, well, that's not broadly, o- that's broadly. overly simplistic? It's broadly. Uh, you know, so it's my a, question it's is, a, what, it's what, a, what, what happens once everyone's retired down to Galt's Gulch? That's where they um, hunger down and just 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 you know switch off the rest of the world. Is is there a part two? What 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 is the next? Well, what happens after the you know the the the, 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 the slowdown or the, the the closing down of business? Because it seems to me that we're we're close to that point as well. Well, if you if, imagine if, if you had a if imagine you if you're Tim Martin, for example, and you're trying to run a pub chain, and the government's basically going, no, no, not on our watch. You think, well, well, fuck you. I'll just I'll just shut down then. I'll take my money and I'll you know, I'll go off to the Caribbean or whatever, and um, you know, you, you can you okay, can run well, your own pubs. Well, okay, well, what, without going into Dan Rand and. Just look at what happened in the 1970s when the Labour government put um, the marginal rate of infant tax up to, I think, 108%. There was a cessation. Of, the two things happened in the run-up to that. Number one, business owners spent far more time with their tax advisors mm-hmm. devising um, strategies to minimise that because it suddenly became urgent. If, if you, the, 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 the laws in those days were ridiculous in terms of favoring one type of asset over another. And I've forgotten whether they were 
punishing cap investments, you know, long-term investments in machinery and and alleviating working capital, or it was the other way around. I don't know. I think it was capital that was being punished because they thought in their simplistic way, if a company invests in a machine, it's taking jobs away. So we better punish that. And we don't really understand what working capital is, so we'll give that we'll give that a miss. Or even give it tax breaks because it's obviously lots of money and that can be used to pay the workers. Um, so people spend entrepreneurs spend an inordinate amount of time figuring out how to how to work the system with its often very contradictory rules. It's number one. And number two, they just stopped, just gave up. They just said, okay, forget it. Sold the business to somebody at whatever price or just shut it down and took the proceeds and went somewhere else. They went to Monte Carlo or they went to Jersey or they went to Canada or they went to Caribbean or wherever they went. You know, and I suppose you, I suppose you could say that what then happened was Mrs. Thatcher. And what then happened was the country then ran out of money mm. and people got fed up and voted in somebody who said, you know, this is a load of bollocks. This is a, let's, let's try a different approach. Mm. And, you know, Mrs. Thatcher was, um, was the sort of spearhead of, of a government of sort of young thinkers who were, who were, Anti everything that had happened since you know, the, the 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 Hume, um, um, Wilson, and then that awful period of the nineteen seventies with Callaghan and Heath and um, and the various governments trying to sort of micromanage the economy and and you know what happened just let, let it rip um, and the entrepreneurs came back and people started having faith in. The fact that the tax system was going to be fair, and they could keep their um, um, they keep their proceeds and reinvest because you know, most people just don't understand what profit is. They, they really don't. Uh, I've, I've I've had a number of very amusing anecdotes when businesses have gone into what I what's called open book management. You know, when they've started sharing the financial results within the company. In other words, in, in, in an attempt to try and get everybody on board and understand what the challenges are. Um, one of my favorite stories was a company in Chicago that I know very well that got their 200 employees into a room um, and asked them three questions. Question number one is how much, how much revenue do we do as a business? Number two, how much profit do we make? And number three, how much do the owners take home? What do they get paid? What, what are they taking home? And everybody had to write those three answers on a piece of paper or on three different colored post-it notes. And those post-it notes got put up on a big board. So we get 200 or 600 little post-it notes. And the results were absolutely hilarious. I mean, they really were hilarious because you had, there was a sort of range of, the, let's say, plus minus 20% for revenue. The, the, they, they had a pretty good idea of what the revenue of the business was. But profit... Profit was, in some cases, larger than the revenue projection, you know, um, or the revenue number, um, and had very little to do with the number that eventually came out. And people were assuming that management took out, or the owners of the business took out, by orders of magnitude, more than they did. As it happened, the owners of the business were taking nothing out of the business because it was all being reinvested. And the owner of the business 
said, you know, when, when it became apparent of what the real numbers were, you know, that the profit margin was around about 5% on a turnover of somewhere in the region of 8 million, and that they were putting all of that profit back into the business to invest in growth. You know, there was absolute, they said it was stunned silence in the room. And one guy put up his hand and said, why on earth do you do it? <laughs> and, and this understanding of what profit is and what it's used for and why it's needed to maintain the integrity of a business is something that, you know, in our current discussion of what business is, is miles away from it's a general understanding. Even business people sometimes don't understand what that is. So, you know, there's uh, um, the entrepreneurial system is at the very, very heart of our system of prosperity. And if you start messing around with it, which we are doing and have been doing for such quite a long time, you're on a, you know, you are on a on the road to impoverishment. Mic drop. And I think. I'm not sure whether he's been a previous guest on your podcast, but the chap called Eamon Butler. Yes. Yes, we have Eamon on. Who's just written a book called Entrepreneurship. Literally just been published last week or the week before. And it's really good. It, it's, it's the, if you like, the Austrian, it's a revisiting of the Austrian appreciation of the entrepreneur as the central agent in the entire economic system. Um, basically, Schumpeter and Mises started you know, describing the role of the entrepreneur. Schumpeter um, was, if you like, the, the high priest of the entrepreneurial function in, in economics. Um, and Aidan Butler's done a really good job of updating and, and reintroducing that notion uh, in his book. Well worth reading. You're very passionate about business, and it, it definitely comes across and of course you've we we've just put an advert out for your latest courses but um this would be a good time to to tell us a bit about them well i i re- i'm very glad to and thank you for the opportunity of doing that and also thank you for putting the adver- advertisement out i it's been something that i've been stewing over for years because if you're if you have a focus on deep value I'm going to call it deep value, small business, private equity, and investing in businesses that are in some way in a, in a process of distress or in need of restructuring, um, which is where the, you know, some great bargains are because that market is incredibly inefficient. You end up talking to a lot of people who own businesses that you end up, of course, not buying or not getting invested in. Um, and I've been asked to speak over the years you know, on, on the capitalist function and, and what an investor looks for in a operating business. And one of the things that I, I suppose, I can probably go back 25 years when I started sort of thinking about applying investment ideas to the real world um, was my understanding that most business people just don't think in terms of finance. And that sounds really strange because you think that business people think about nothing other than finance. 
And they think a lot about cash flow, particularly when they don't have it or it's a problem, but they don't think about their business in the way that an investor thinks about it. So the way that you, Paul and Tim, the paradigm with which you look at the world is not one that is automatic to most people in business. So I found myself often explaining the way that I and people like me look at their businesses in order to give them a different perspective. In other words, I would sort of take off my glasses and say, if you were to, if you had my glasses, you would look at your business in a completely different way. I'm looking at things that you don't even, in, that don't even interest you and you don't know what they mean. And I will look at them and I will look at them because I have a, a way of looking at businesses that is you know, innate to my profession. I don't have a particular unique way of looking at businesses, but I do have the, the I look through the perspective of an external investor, which you know, as, as any craft, if you practice it long enough, you, you get those certain patterns that you look for and you can, you, know, you can look at a balance sheet within 30 seconds and start making a hypothesis or formulating a hypothesis, which you then go into testing in your you know, in your, in your further examination of the business. But I found, I found that I was quite good at explaining it, and it's probably because I have a non-economic, non-scientific background. My background, like yours, Tim, is in literature and narrative, um, and explaining sort of things to people in metaphors and stories comes naturally to me and I enjoy doing it. And I also loved seeing how th that appreciation of a different way of looking at that business led to a better engagement with the business. And a couple of years ago, 2018, I was asked by a friend to, if I would codify that, if I could put sort of the, some of the stuff that I've been talking about into a form that people could learn. And that was the birth of the idea of a course and effectively the founding of Good and Prosper as a, as a platform for, for disseminating a the sort of knowledge that I think all business people ought to have, particularly the ones that don't really feel comfortable or confident around finance in their business. And as one of my ex-students from last year said, who is very intelligent. She's a scientist. She runs a great business with her husband. And she said, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I've had no financial training. We've run this business because we were passionate about what we were doing. But I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know the limits to my ignorance. I didn't know what there was to know. But I had this feeling that the numbers of the business would tell me more if I knew what to look for. And that was you know, exactly, that's exactly the sort of person that I'm looking for um, to teach because they are hungry for knowledge, they're intelligent, they just don't have that training and they are confused by the language of business that's been sort of, that's delivered to them. They don't see the important stuff because the system is clogged up with unimportant stuff. You don't need to be an expert in taxes or accounting in order to, to extract really meaningful information from your from your business numbers, you just have to know what to look for. You need to know. You need to have a system that delivers 
delivers it to you on time, accurately, and completely. In other words, it can't be missing stuff. And at the heart of what I teach is, is a... Um, um, I want people to fall in love with their balance sheets. That's what I want them to do. And because if you love your balance sheet, if you, if you, if you take it as something that is innately yours as the owner, you will suddenly see what happens when you start appreciating it because you, you can't appreciate something without then tailoring your actions to support that appreciation. There's a great phrase from, Lynn Twist's book, Soul of Money, which is um, what, a, what you appreciate appreciates. And understanding how the balance sheet is a reflection of, or if you like, a, a, a compact of all the decisions that you've ever made in your business and seeing how they work to your either advantage or disadvantage is the beginning of a process that then allows you to understand what capital is in the business, what returns on capital are, how, your, how the value that you're creating in the marketplace finds its way into your balance sheet and creates strength and therefore prosperity and what I call capacity over time. Um, and that's what I teach. I want people to come out of the courses with a deep understanding and a new, new paradigm and way of thinking about the numbers in their business so that they truly appreciate you know, the, the beauty of what it is that they're doing um, and making sure that they are no longer at the behest of people who have a different um, intention when they're talking to them about their numbers. Not bad intentions, it's just different. You know, an accountant is looking at, as, at the tax and compliance aspects of his system, he's not looking at um, he's not looking at the value creation per se. He's not interested. That's not his job. Um, and so, you know, all the different people, bankers have a different a different view of of your numbers. But the entrepreneur needs to have his own or her own very specific relationship to their balance sheet and to and to their numbers system, in order to understand and to have have an intelligent conversation with their business because the business will always, always invariably and infallibly tell you what it needs. It's like a, like a small child, you know, a baby. When babies cry, there can be all sorts of reasons why they're crying. And, there's, and as a parent, you learn, to, um, you learn to listen to the different ways in which your baby cries to know which end to look at. You know, it, could be the, it could be the feeding end, it could be the poo end, it could be the middle, it could be, you know, there are all sorts of things. It could be just be boredom. And a business will do the same. It won't talk to you in English or in your language, but it will talk to you in numbers. And if you can understand them, the business will always tell you what it needs, always, and where you need to turn your attention, um, always. But if you don't speak the language, then you will never really understand what the business is telling you and you will always have to go to somebody to translate it for you who may not and probably will not have the same intention that you would have um, if you could understand it directly. So that's what the courses are about. I teach that to people. So and I guarantee that at the end of you know, 10 weeks, 
or 10 lessons, if we do it in a shorter time than 10 weeks, you will have a completely different perspective on um, on the numbers in your business. I guarantee that. Double mic drop. And you have different levels of, of, of attainment. I do. I've created, well, yeah, when I did the when I did the pilot courses last year, um, I packed everything into sort of one course because I was terrified that I wasn't going to have enough to tell people, and you know, people, my students were sort of reeling from the sheer volume of of information that I sort of dumped on them in a in a um, in an hour session, and I figured out that was not didactically the most intelligent way of approaching it, so. I um, split it into various different levels. Um, the first one, the one that's starting in a first cohort, is starting in about a week and a half's time, is the practitioner, which is a, a mindset. That's about sort of how to think about numbers and a sort of introduction to the basic structure of the balance sheet. Which I think, by the way, so double entry bookkeeping has got to be one of the very few inventions of the human creative mind that is not derived from natural laws of uh, science. In other words, something we've, we've made up all by ourselves in much the same way as we've made up contour lines. And contour lines on a map and, and double-entry bookkeeping both have two things in common, namely that they, they allow multidimensional data to be to be um, represented in a two-dimensional format. And that's genius. So the first course is the practitioner, which sort of gives this mindset, this new way of looking at numbers and some basic explanation around what the structure is, the grammar, if you like, of the, um, the language of business. The second one, the master, is more, um, has more practical applications, you know, how to use this knowledge to actually run your business and communicate within your business. And the third one, which I haven't done very much work other than to define it loosely, I'm calling the wizard level. And the wizard level I've decided to create because two of my students from last year both sold their businesses and were sitting on sort of reasonably large amounts of capital for them. And they, and I noticed that they were really unsure of how to cross from being an operating owner of a business to suddenly being an investor. And I could see that there was a, there was a, a lack of confidence in, in believing that anything that they, that they knew to be true as an operator had any relevance in the investing world. So what the wizard course is about is capital allocation as an operating manager with a you know, great deal of experience and expertise and how to turn that into an asset in an investing sort of next stage investing life and that's something that i that i'm very passionate about but i'm what drives me is that is a a real need for people to understand their their role as capitalists within you know, an entrepreneurial system, because if you don't appreciate capital and you don't understand how it works, you will never really have that deep attachment to the system that allows you to do it. Um, and, I, and at the heart of what I want to do is to bolster the number of 
to grow the number of people who say yes to a free market um, entrepreneurial system of wealth creation because you know that's what our our free lives depend on. So there's a very strong, I suppose at the bottom of this, a very strong political conviction of how our society needs to be organized. And the, you know, and the only way that entrepreneurs can, can grasp that is if they understand and speak the language of business fluently. And that's my little area of the world that I want to make that contribution to. So you, you have a, a limited amount of people who come on so you can give them a, a personal interaction is that correct that this is the first sort of course of its type from you know the pilots that we did last year um and so i'm limiting this to 25 um students but we will over time as we get better at doing this and delivering the sort of student experience my hope is that we will that we will be able to grow this you know almost exponentially and i've just literally come off a course in september um which was one of the best course experiences I've ever had where there were a thousand people on the course and it felt really intimate. Um, it was called Building a Second Brain by a guy called um, Tiago Forte who has just mastered this whole idea of note-taking and writing and how we can sort of continually work on sort of capturing all the stuff that comes at us in a, to maximize our creative output. And it's a superb course, and you know, anybody who's who, anybody who's involved in creative work of any sort, and investing, I will count as a very creative process, uh, needs to at least have a look at that course. So it's twenty-five this time, but over the next years, we'll be building that our capacity up so that you can have the same experience at twenty-five students as you know two hundred and fifty or maybe even a thousand at some stage. Um, that's the, I think, the core business um, skill is finding a way to teach something that is so that that student experience is intimate, and yet at the same time you're you're able to scale it. And I've seen now how that's possible, um, and so it's I've got a high a high bar to aim for. But we're starting with twenty five, and I'm putting the lid on it at twenty five. And it's so it's tw- it's twenty five for all three of those categories, or no twenty five? Just I'm just doing one, just doing the practitioner to just start. Just the practitioner with. to start with, right? Just to start with, and we're doing that this year, and then next year we'll roll out. We'll probably do three of each, except for the wizard. We'll do three practitioner and three masters, um, and we'll be building that. I've got a great little team that um, can do this stuff much much better than I can. My job is just to sort of tip my brain into to it in my experience and hopefully be a good teacher i've always found that when you when you start to teach something that you think that you've done for a long time and you think well oh yeah this is obviously obvious and this is obvious and but it's but it's not when you start to break it down it's amazing what what you gather in terms of knowledge over a long period of time of doing something and how valuable that knowledge can be and it's uh, it always surprises me. So when you were saying about your first course, that made me smile a little bit because because um, uh, like for example, I was asked to speak about photography at my um, daughter's school, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm just going to speak about the, the the simple practical elements of of photography, and and it was just amazing how how much detail you ended up having to explain 
that wasn't necessarily obvious to people for things that you just sort of naturally do all the time. You think, oh yeah, everybody knows that in terms of photography, but of course they don't. And it becomes even just a simple subject like that. There is There are so many nuances and things to understand. So something about understanding business and all the years of of practical experience that you've got and it's obviously something that you truly love because of the way you can tell by the way you you talk about it it's it's something that you're always trying to improve your own knowledge about that's what i find um it fascinating by you know what drives people and and you get better and better at something that you absolutely love and and they also say that you improve your own knowledge by teaching i wonder whether you found that Without a shadow of doubt. What teaching does to you is it it makes you realize how many shortcuts you take um, and how many steps you are mentally prepared to jump and miss out. Because if you do that with your students, you lose them. And I have a great story from uh, that Dave Allen, who, who wrote the book Getting Things Done, um, which is sort of probably the he's the grandfather of um, of personal knowledge management and getting systems in place for for dealing with all the stuff that comes flying at us every day. And he he was sitting next to a guy in a plane, and he was explaining what he did. And the guy said, "Oh yeah, I, I recognise that because I'm responsible for safety at a NASA Arctic Research Centre, and one of the things that we've discovered is that when people, you know, if something happens to the Arctic facility and there's a storm and temperatures suddenly drop, then I've got about a 10-minute window in which people whose core temperature is suddenly dropping rapidly have to do, they've got a 10-minute window in which they can implement emergency measures. And as as their cognitive facility depletes with the drop in temperature so too even the simplest things they they need clear instructions i can't miss anything out so what we do is we, we write we have to break down the processes for really really simple stuff without missing any steps because if i miss out a step then the person who's trying to follow those instructions will be stuck and they'll freeze to death and I found that was a really good model for thinking about my own sort of um, didactic process of making sure that I really, really don't miss anything out. And what that means is you have to do much, much less in a course, much less. I thought to start with that if I didn't give all of my knowledge into two big wheelbarrows full, then people would be disappointed. Exactly the opposite is true. It's worth spending, you know, seven eighths of the course being really, really slow and then ramping up at the end just to make sure that those very simple concepts and each step in the process is is well understood. And I think it was Abraham Lincoln who this is the one um, about polishing a polishing an axe or something. Yeah, yeah, it was. If um, if I was given ten minutes to or an hour to uh, to cut down a tree, I think he said I'd spend fifty minutes sharpening the axe, mm. and that's pretty much 
a, that's a good metaphor for for coursework is you know, sharpening the axe and getting making sure you are absolutely rock solid in the basics before moving moving on to sort of higher concepts is crucial and and there's the art of simplification as well because as einstein said if you unless you can explain it to a child you don't really understand it and when you're being forced to explain something because people learn in different ways and they may not get a concept that you think is quite simple they may not get it they may not understand it the first way round so you have to explain it in different ways and in, and explaining it in different ways and simplifying it all the way down to base basic principles is a skill in itself and it shows that you really understand it um which i which i find fascinating so you can tell the difference between somebody who really knows what they're talking about because they can keep reducing it to more and more simple terms but people who don't just sort of skirt over it and they just say oh yeah you just do this and that's you get this result well you know well how does that happen if you're curious you keep asking questions about the the processes into finer and finer detail and that's where that's where you truly understand something i agree and i think the great geniuses of our of our intellectual tradition have distinguished themselves by their ability to write simply um and i would say that that was a true mark of genius is the ability to make to write in a way that anybody can understand and to do that out of a position of humility rather than trying to ram my intellectual superiority down people's throats which is so often the hallmark of academic writing oh yes i was about to say that's it they don't want you to question them they want you to this is the information you learn it and then you regurgitate it in an exam and if somebody tries to to say well actually isn't that wrong it comes back to what we've been talking about at the top of the show you end up with people who just think this is the way it can be done it can't be done any other way and you're not supposed to question it and that's not good for society it's not good for anybody and it's not not good for the end result absolutely um you know, in our own profession the people people like Ben Graham and and Seth Klarman and Joel Greenblatt, who who really are masters of the craft, true masters. You 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 just feel reading it. You just feel the sort of the intensity of their knowledge just vibrating through every page. But their writing is beautifully simple. Uh, it's almost poetic. Um, and what you're also realizing, particularly with Graham, is the is the broad generalist um depth of his of his knowledge you know being able to draw on classical texts and history and philosophy and psychology and to use those ingredients to make this subject come to life they are they're if you like my inspiration um because i believe that finance is the handmaiden of business and and not its dominatrix um and as a handmaiden, it needs to be, um, it needs to serve the higher purpose of business. Because once you put it in charge with a whip and leathers, you know, you know what's going to come out of it. Professor Cockdown. <laughs> <laughs> your, your nemesis. <laughs> do, do we have time to talk about Brexit? 
Oh yeah, that's still on the table, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking during the during this conversation, a sort of thought came into the back of my head when we were talking about politics and when Tim asked whether the system could survive. I had to think about my own political evolution over the last four or five years, and I can say, I think, that where I started off, I started off as a sort of gentle conservative, you know, with sort of a basic liking of an admiration for Margaret and what she did. And I think I've been radicalized over the past three or four years into a deeply libertarian position because I just find the libertarian argument and the venom that's thrown at anybody who dares espouse libertarian principles, given the sheer sociopathy and and cruelty of and stupidity of the system that we have at the moment and its complexity and its 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 freedom destroying constraints and lack of responsibility. I think I've been I can say that I've been radicalized. I, I didn't think that I ever would be. I didn't think I was the sort of person who could be radicalized. But I am much, much more interested in the libertarian argument today than I would have been had I not seen how appallingly the political process has been managed around Brexit and now around Corona. The other two things are, they're not entirely separate cases. It's funny, isn't it? I've I've thought about this. I don't know why, but I think think you've just answered the question that the FBP types and and pro-lockdown types are almost, almost the same people. Like the, the the correlation must be nearly 100%. Yes, and I think what 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 combines or what unites them or the or the core characteristic is a, a massive distrust of individuals free markets and individual responsibility um, and a, a hubristic belief that they know best a, a touching that, faith, a touching faith in technocracy some might say yeah yeah or, or, or just a, an, arrog- an arrogance of you know of their own beliefs and i don't we won't even go into the critical theory nonsense because unless you unless you stand up and say they this is this is inimical to our way of life and we're not even going to engage in an argument because it's so preposterous um, then you know you unless you prepare to do that, you're always going to find yourself entangled by this neo-Marxist or proto-socialist nonsense um, that is not only deeply racist in itself. I mean, it's just insultingly racist. It's also deeply insulting to our intelligence. And and because I you know I despair. I see Gramsci's you know Gramsci got it right. You know, he, he pointed them in the right direction, and this is where we are. Um, so, to answer your question about Brexit, uh, you know, we're coming out where where it was inevitable that we were going to come out with absolutely no deal, um, and the the repair and the pragmatism will happen the moment that we are out without a deal. And that's always been obvious. There is, there is no good faith on the other side because there can't be 
because the whole system on the other side depends on Britain being punished for its audacity and stupidity in leaving the construct. And um, you know, I don't, I don't. The the institutional imperative in the EU is to make sure that we get humiliated, but the pragmatic work of actually you know, getting stuff done, making sure business flows, um, will happen on the first of January. So, you know, it's that, and that was always going to be the result, always. And and much as I am livid with Boris Johnson's approach and his lack of leadership over these last seven or eight months, at least we have that to be thankful for. What's your take, Tim? Uh, I, 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 Stephen's expressed absolutely perfectly. I mean, my only, my only concern is that it, Boris manages a fuck breaks up like he's fucked up everything else. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you worry about that, Stephen? Well, when you look at how how somebody has managed to turn a is it sixty five seventy seat advantage eighty, 80 seat majority eighty seat majority into you know and the political capital that that gave him you know that's like that's like having a a top notch venture funding round you know. <laughs> You, you couldn't imagine having more money and more political capital than Boris had coming into the new year. It's just extraordinary what he could have done had he been minded to. And what has appalled me is the lack of, of program. You know, for all his great speeches and his bumptiousness and his 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 brilliant rhetoric, you know, I'm thinking of the Manchester speech, superb Manchester speech, where we all thought this is someone who is just going to go swinging for the fences. He's got a programme. He he knows what he wants, and he's going to use this historic opportunity to turn the country into a completely different direction. Just imagine if he'd have stood his ground in March and gone the Swedish way and reached out to the Swedes and said, we're going to do this together. You know, let's, let's send our best scientists, let's monitor, let's, you know, let's just do this our way. With Can you hear that someone, someone's actually playing Jerusalem in the background now? <laughs> just imagine, you know, given everything we know about the Gompertz curve and what the result would have been, can you imagine the, just how strong he would have been today and how strong the country would have been? Sort of busting up into to the end of the year, but as it is, you know, the question you asked me was: Is he going to cock it up? I I see so little leadership of substance that anything's possible, but I doubt it because the momentum is too strong. There's just not enough time, um, and there is no way on earth that he's going to go for an extension because that would blow the last of his his promises. You know, the, or, the, or the pillar on which his entire government is based uh, would be smashed underneath it. And I don't think he can afford that. Do you think he gets ditched by the Tories early in the new year? I don't. You think he, don't. You think he leaves voluntarily in any, in any form? No, I don't. 
the, 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 only, the my only sort of counter to that is that the, the Conservative Party is, I think, the longest lived political party in the world, and it does have a a kind of innate in, instinct for self preservation. So I, I I I have no particular insight. I don't know any of the players involved, but it strikes me that if if they have any. If they have that instinct of self-preservation, then they're going to a few people are going to have to get thrown under the bus, and Boris might have to be one of them. Yeah, the question is, who are they? The nineteen twenty-two committee. Well, I, I'm thinking that the only reason Hancock is still in office is so that he can be the first to be thrown into the volcano. Well, then you know, then that's what's going to happen, and Boris is enough of a power politi- politician; he understands the game well enough to know that when he has to sacrifice whom, and I'm sure that will happen in a spring reshuffle. You know, as we, I, I just can't imagine, um, this is going to die, the whole thing is going to die out in after 18 months, and let's just say that that's going to be June of next year. Um, I suspect when we come into the spring of 2021, um, that's when he will do his big cabinet reshuffle and and set himself up for whatever recovery comes afterwards. Um, so he's, you know, he's he'll, he'll survive, but I think he has wasted an enormous opportunity to consolidate his own power, his reputation, and he's looking more like Keith than he is Churchill, mm. you know, um, on that scale. And a, and a great pity um, because he's allowed the sort of he's allowed the mob through the media and academia and the institutions just to run riot over him rather than coming out very firmly. And the moment that he did his U-turn, he was, you know, the, the hounds were on him. Mm. So do I think, no, I, I don't think, I don't think the Brexit process is stoppable. I think we'll sort of go over the line, but it won't be in the same sort of robust self-confident way that it could have been. It'll be like the knackered marathon runner that gets carried over by one of his mates. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Okay. Right. I think I think we need media picks unless there's anything else on the agenda. What do you think, chaps? Let's go for it. Was there anything, Stephen, that you wanted to say just before we wrap wrapped up? No, no. If any of your if any of your listeners um, is interested in finding out more about the course they can i'm sure you're going to put a link to it in the show notes and i would be delighted to talk to anybody personally um as we're only going to be 25 to, uh, to anybody who is interested in joining the course um just to see if it's right for them um more than happy so you can put my contact details into the uh, into the show notes if you like um and i look forward to talking to any of your esteemed listeners um, about that opportunity. We are proud affiliates of you, of you. So yes, we'd be happy to do that. Um, Thank you. So, um, so media picks now, um, now you're not, you're not allowed Ozark because I know you're into that season. Oh, that's (laughs) (laughs) No, you can have it, but it's, uh, Tim and I are big fans of it already, but. Oh, are you? Because I've just discovered it and I'm now hooked and um, I'll probably finish it in the next day or two, but God, it's a good series. Where are you? Uh, 3-8. I've just found the whole narrative amazing. It's brilliant. It's, it's uh, yeah. The second one was very, very good. Yeah. 
but the third one, I've you know, I'm just hooked. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just hooked. And I find all the characters so extraordinary and believable, and and I'm enjoying it very much. Excellent. It's a good story. Excellent. So we'll have it's that as yours, um, Tim. Um, and a book. Oh, ooh, um, awesome! I I've discovered a a writer who was um, who was evidently one of the sort of leading lights of the National Review, which was William Buckley's. Um, sort of conservative magazine, conservative publication that he started in the 1940s, I think. A chap called James Burnham, who wrote eight or nine books. Um, the uh, there are three that um, that are worth, well, they're all worth reading, but three that are particularly pertinent. Um, one of them is called The Managerial Class. It's his first book. Second one is called The Machiavellians, which is, I think, his best book. But the one that is probably most relevant in sort of framing the political debate today is called The Suicide of the West, an essay on the meaning and destiny of liberalism. And he is a superb writer. I mean, just excoriating with a very terse command of the English language superb writer um, and for anybody who you know who wants to know what uh, or needs arguments to marshal against this um, this situation that we're in at the moment then the suicide of the West is a great place to start brilliant Tim mine um, mine is going to be an old an old favorite of mine. Uh, it's a, a 50s sci-fi classic called uh, Quatermass 2. <laughs> I have seen it, by the way. I oh, have you seen, have? I have, yes. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, it was, it was, it was great, but I, it's, your sort, it's definitely your sort of film. I know, I know your style of film, and it's bang on for you. The, the reason I like it so much is, to go back to that earlier debate about cock-up versus conspiracy, this is definitely one for the conspiracy. And this is the perfect metaphor for what we're living through now. So the premise is that there are these little meteorites landing in a place in southeast England called Winners and Flats. And Quatermass, who's this crusty old professor, genius scientist, um, goes out there to see what's going on and comes across this amazing, amazing complex of, of buildings in the middle of nowhere that bears a, an astonishing similarity to his own lunar base project that's been kicked into the long grass by the MOD. And um, anyhow, so what, what, what ultimately transpires is that there is a, an alien conspiracy that reaches all the way into central government um, to basically uh, breed these giant monstrous things and, 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 and get food for them. And so what happens is, and this is this is a precursor to Alien. I mean, I think everybody in in science fiction and probably other fields just rips off everybody else all the time. So there's nothing nothing new under the sun. But these meteorites, when you when you sort of pick one up, it sort of explodes, and then just for a tiny flash, a little monster sort of just darts from the meteorite onto your onto your skin, onto into your body, and then t t takes you over. And it's so, so all the people that basically Quatermass meets from that point on basically have this little sort of V-shaped jagged mark where they've been affected by an alien. And I'm just thinking this is, this is just the perfect way of describing totalitarian Britain in 2020. <laughs> 
brilliant. It's great fun anyway. Brilliant. Um, what I did watch, the Borat film, which I found hugely funny, probably it's cringeworthy. It's, he's taken it to another level again. Apparently Rudy Giuliani reckons it's a hands-down hit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the balls of the guy is just phenomenal. I mean, I can't believe what he got, does and gets away with it. It's, and if you do see it, um, the 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 dance scene. What's it called? It's it's um, it's Borat the subsequent movie film. It's really funny. It's really re- I found it really funny. You've got to it's got to hit your Is sense it? of humor. But it's it's I thought it was really really funny. Borat the Borat film the, the last one contained. It was one of those films where I, I literally had to leave the room because I was just so <laughs> <laughs> so up, embarrassed. Yeah. You remember when he runs through the yes the, um, the convention of real estate naked? Yes, yes, and has that fight, <laughs> and it goes into. The, I mean, there's there is a there is a moment in there. There's a dance scene that I could just I could not believe. I could absolutely not. I just oh my god, uh, yeah. So, but there are moments in there, and it, it's just, it's just stupid and funny, and I really liked it. And it was it's the kind of entertainment we do in the darkened times. Yes, and this and, is in the this is a cinema film, or is no? It it's on, on Amazon Prime on right show? now. It's on Amazon Prime. You can okay. watch it straight away. Cinema? What's that, Granddad? Yeah, they're going to be closing <laughs> down, aren't they? So, um, so, I note that Talib is, is is turned into a big political issue and a racial issue and stuff like that. The, my only. My only comment about how Sasha Baron Cohen could have probably made it better was he shouldn't really have picked a real country. Um, he should have just had a made-up country name, and then it wouldn't wouldn't be such a kind of racial issue, which is what people are up in arms about at the moment, or certain people are. But- my my favorite bit from the one of my favorite bits from the first film is is the the lyrics to the Kazakh national anthem, which is all of all of the countries have inferior potassium. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's it's uh, it's so silly, but I you know I think the, the shame of it is that I think some people take it too too seriously and I, I, anyone with half a brain knows that of course it's not like that it's, a you joke. Know, it's, it's just a joke. a joke well thank you very much for having me back on again and allowing me to give my little spiel for the um, for the course I very much appreciate that always a pleasure thank you so okay. much all the best with that and again, um, Paul, we'll Tim, speak to you soon cheers Bye-bye. bye bye Tim excellent yep. and thank you so much pleasure And thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.